This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello, I am Mark Borderstone, and welcome to The End of History, a monthly program presented by the Canterbury Socialist Society where we discuss the class struggle, contemporary unionism, economics and current affairs in order to promote working class history and socialist ideas as they apply to the 21st century. Kia ora koutou. welcome to The End of History, a radio show slash podcast brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society. My name is Shannon Burns. I'm an executive member of the Canterbury Socialist Society. And as ever, I have a few things to say about both the Canterbury Socialist Society and the New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies before I move on to introduce this month's special guest and more. So, the Canterbury Socialist Society, or the CSS, is a socialist organisation based in Ōtautahi Christchurch, the CSS hosts regular educational and social events in order to promote working class history, a political economic system that prioritises need and not the accumulation of private wealth, and so a more egalitarian society. Along with the Otago Socialist Society and the Wellington Socialist Society, the Canterbury Socialist Society is affiliated to the New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies, and you can visit socialistsocieties.org.nz to learn more about all of that and to join a socialist society local to you. socialistsocieties.org.nz is also where you can find out about the quarterly magazine Commonweal, the fourth edition of which is due out next month, and the first ever New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies Conference, which is taking place in Christchurch also next month. I'll have more on that kind of stuff at the end of the episode, Right now, it's my pleasure to introduce Lan Farm, a former Environment Canterbury councillor with a background in freshwater ecology and a current Green Party candidate for the Banks Peninsula electorate. Lan and I sat down to talk about political engagement and voting quite generally, the 2023 Aotearoa New Zealand general election more specifically, and why its outcome matters for people and the physical environment. Thank you so much, Lan, for taking time out from the campaign trail. Listeners, I'll be back after this conversation with music, reviews and more. Enjoy. Okie doke. So I am here with my special guest. Can you please introduce yourself? Oh, kia ora koutou. My name is Lan Farm. And gosh, what's my, I guess I'm a Green Party candidate. Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm up to at the moment. Very exciting. Can you tell me, I guess I... I've sort of known about you for a number of years when you were an ECAN counsellor. Um, and also, I, I have to say, in my friend group, you've got a bit of legend status because back in the day when we used to do our seven days for choice over our little protest for reproductive rights over in Hagley Park, one time you showed up and we were like, oh my God, Lance here. <laughs> so, so that was pretty cool. But um, maybe you can just tell me a little bit more about yourself and, and your background how yeah. you've come to be a Green Party candidate. Yeah, cool. Okay, that was a fun protest, actually. <laughs> um, right, so my background is I grew up in Wellington, and my heritage is like my dad is from Vietnam, and he came to New Zealand on a scholarship during the Vietnam War. Wow. And my mum's heritage is English, Irish, Pākehā, and 
well, some of those ancestors actually came to arrived in Littleton, Whakaraupo, in 1876 and sort of settled in like Akaroa, some in Christchurch City and also like right out to Hurunui, so like North Canterbury. But yeah, my mum and dad met at uni and then settled in Wellington and had six kids. Wow. So I'm one of six. family. Yeah. But I always say like growing up, I never knew how to use my brain. I like really always believed that there's like these really wise adults that looked at all the evidence and made the best possible decisions for everyone. Like I genuinely believe that. It was a very lovely place. I guess a lovely bubble to grow up in. Yeah. But it wasn't till I started doing my undergrad in ecology and then eventually moved south to Dunedin to do some a course called Conservation Corps and started working with Doc that I started learning more about fresh water. And I guess the bubble burst, right? Like I was like, oh my gosh, like how are people, how are our leaders not protecting like our drinking water? How are they not making sure that our rivers and streams and lakes are safe to swim in? Like why isn't someone doing something about this? So I eventually ended up back at uni doing my master's in freshwater ecology, but also some resource management law. And it was really there that I came into contact with more of our leaders. And this would be like MPs or regional councillors. And again, I'd just be like shocked at not only how much they didn't know, but how much they didn't care that they didn't know. Like I remember this one um, situation where we were at, we were translocating this amazing native fish, the lowland longjaw galaxid. And um, that just sounds very cool. <laughs> it's got a great name. The I Lowland feel like I'm Longjaw. doing like critter of the week now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you, you no, continue. no, it is. It, it's a really cool little fish. Sadly, getting eaten by trout, but they're still hanging on in North Otago in the Kauru and Kakanui rivers. But anyway, this MP at the time came to this translocation. They were kind of the dignitary, which was, you know, releasing the fish. And I had written her speech because I was working for Doc at the time. And she didn't use my notes about the fish and the, you know, really vulnerable habitat that they live in. She talked about how important export growth was and how important agriculture, you know, doubling our agricultural exports by, I think it was 2025 by then was. And I was just shocked and she she barely actually mentioned the fish. And I just was like, oh my goodness, this is what leadership looks like in our country. Uh, And so I went on to, I didn't want to go back to DOC at the time because the then national government were like cutting all the funding. So I started a freshwater trust called Working Waters Trust. And that was awesome. It was like little kind of restoration projects for native fish habitat and for some of our most endangered native fish. And it would partner up, like primarily we worked with farmers, but it would partner up any landowners with schools or community groups or runanga who actually like wanted to do good things for the fish. And it was awesome, but it really felt like, you know, we'd be working in these little bubbles and then for a few hundred metres down the road, there'd be like, wetlands getting bold, yep. you know, more agricultural intensification up there. And I was just like, oh man, this ain't cutting it. So I sort of took a year off and went to Rao Island in the Kermadex. Wow. Uh, it was awesome. Rao Island, if you, if you don't know it, it's Rangitahua and it's halfway between New Zealand and Tonga. So it's like a five-day boat ride from civilization. And only I didn't seven, realize it was quite so far. Like It's pretty epic. 
it's actually still part of New Zealand, but it's like our northernmost island and our only habit, like one that you can inhabit because the rest are just sort of like volcanic rocks in the mm. middle of the ocean. And it is, it's, it's alive, like it's an active volcanic island. So like it's just, you know, the crater lakes are just like bubbling and there's like hot springs like pouring out of the beaches. Wow. It's just like incredible. But I was running the biodiversity and science contracts on the island like there's like humpback whales that like migrate past and millions of seabirds, like the the island is just alive. But I realised the boat would get me back to Christchurch a week before the local government elections. And so I was just like, I'm going to run for council. Like, yes, there's just no one, you know, flying the flag for like human and ecosystem health. And so, you know, people were like, what are you doing running for council? Like you don't have any name recognition. You don't have this, you don't have that, you don't have the experience. And I was like, wow, you know, like life's short. Like <laughs> um, I don't have those things, but I'm sure going to give it my best crack. So I returned to the island and to my shock, I was like voted in highest polling candidate and like 55,000 people voted for me. And this was for ECANA. This was yep. for Environment Canterbury. Yep. So the regional council for Canterbury. And I think for the whole of like local government, it actually went Leanne, oh no, it went Phil Goff, Mayor of Auckland, then Leanne Dalziel, Mayor of Christchurch, and then me, like in terms of numbers. Yeah. It was wild. Tell me about name recognition, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so I was on council for two terms and sort of like good things happened, bad things happened, frustrating, awesome, all of the things and all of the feels. And then because of my background in freshwater ecology, I was appointed what's called an independent freshwater commissioner because this new freshwater commission was established as part of the Labour government that's now in power. And so I had to be non-political to take that role. So I was like, sweet, like goodbye politics. Yeah. Um, direct decision-making under this new freshwater legislation. But in short, life happened. And basically like Eugenie Sage, who's been an incredible Green MP, um, was retiring. And there really just was so few people with an environmental background like lots of people are involved in the Green Party, but actually putting themselves forward to be one of the politicians. Um, so I was like, oh no, you know, like I've been privileged to, I had been in the elected role. And so I was like, you know, with privilege comes responsibility and you got to step up. So yeah, I sort of threw my head in the ring and I hadn't been part of the Green Party before. So it was quite new, but I've ended up at number six on the list. And here we go. Yeah, so you're very, I mean, barring anything absolutely unexpected, you're you're set for parliament, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite crazy. Like, I'm always like, oh, you, can, you never know till the night because crazy things happen in politics. But it is. It's, it's a very high likelihood that I will be heading to parliament. And that's both, you know, extremely exciting and terrifying. Mostly exciting. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting time right now like right now with voting opening in a week so you're likely going into parliament you've got a family and stuff as well so Mm. like is that at all kind of scary or is everyone kind of on board with it and like yeah this is happening (laughs) yeah great question (laughs) I'm really lucky so my extended family you know like my siblings and my dad and all that like they're just super excited and, and also that comes back to like a sort of representation part of things. Like I'm pretty sure 
um, that if I am elected, I'd be the first MP of Vietnamese heritage wow. elected to parliament, which would be super cool. And I feel a little bit like, you know, I wish I could be the best possible Vietnamese representative, but I That's don't quite a lot speak to put on Vietnamese. one person. <laughs> yeah, but it's cool. There's a really cool like aspect to it with that in terms of like repping my whānau and my heritage. But yes, I do have a young family, so two kids, five and two. And luckily I have an incredible husband and we really do see it as like a real team thing, you know, like we're doing this together and I couldn't do it any other way. And I think as well, you know, like as parents in this day and age, we're ultimately, and I mean, you know, I know that you don't have to be a parent to share the sentiment, but it is about, yeah, the basics of how do we provide ideally a stable future, but I, you know, ideally a like freaking amazing future for our kids and grandkids and future generations. And you know, the way the world's been going, that's not, you know, by no means, not only a guarantee, but we're actually kind of actively working against that. So there's a lot that needs to change. And who's going to change it? Well, there ain't no one coming to save us. So it's literally us. Like, it's just people. It's just me. Yeah. It's you. It's anyone listening. And um, yeah, I, I, I get really excited about that. I, I think, you know, I feel like we've lost sight of so much of things that have true value, you know, like actually caring for each other and caring for our planet. But it's entirely in the realm of possibility for us to actually just decide to prioritise that stuff. So, yeah, I'm I'm excited to be trying to do that at least. Yeah, so that's a good segue. So what sort of things are you worried about? What do you – what's your kind of assessment of the situation – of the the world, yeah. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. And what do you what do you want to do? And maybe why the greens? Yeah. Gosh, assessment five, of the world. Five questions <laughs> and really big ones, but <laughs> okay. So my assessment of the world <laughs> is that we and and you know this is totally where I've been at right with kind of this blind belief that someone will do something and that someone will figure it out for the rest of us. You know, I know that that's not true. And I I also, from what I've seen, you know, especially in Canterbury, especially with the freshwater side of things, like we have slowly but surely, actually maybe not so slowly, um, just over a few decades, like really degraded and destroyed a lot of our freshwater ecosystems. And unfortunately there's no magic wands in terms of, improving that like even if we turn off the pollution tap tomorrow we would still see decades of pollution until it actually worked its way through our ecosystem so we have kind of gone down this track but I really believe that like there's no blame like there is no point entering the blame game about who did what and why because I I, from what I've seen from especially you know rural communities and farmers there has like of course people haven't wanted to destroy the environment yeah um we as a society have like set up the conditions exactly to do that we've incentivized it yeah and we've said yeah you're doing a great job keep going you know that that's basically been the message so I feel like we're all part of owning where we've got to not only like with fresh water but with where we're at with climate change and the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that we're emitting and 
you know, we, we've all been part of that. Like, like it or not, we, we have been as a collective society. But what I love about the Green Party is that we really believe that all of those decisions have been political decisions. Like, it's just people, the people in power who made the decisions. And so if we change those people and we get in people who are actually evidence-based have values like I, I kind of crack up a lot because you know the Green Party are typically seen as like these extreme radicals and I'm like what is the extreme bit like is it caring <laughs> for people or is it like caring for the environment yeah um where is it because otherwise we are a party that's entirely evidence-based like our policies don't get through our own processes unless we're talking like we've got clear evidence we've got like academic experts who are actually like backing it up unless it's fully costed you know it's there's no la la land the only la la land is the belief that we can decide to care for each other and care for the planet and that that's all the same thing you know we can't silo off environmental issues from social justice issues you know it's just it's one thing so we're trying to do it all yeah and I think that's yeah exciting it's exciting. It's a lot. I think more and more as you continue to talk, like it was a really interesting way to start off because I think a lot of people are in the same situation where they either just trust that people who are in positions of power know what they're doing and are you know making the right decisions or, as you say, believe that someone's going to come and take care of it and it really is just a matter of actually – people having to get in there like yourself and and take on that role. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm finding it, you know, lots with the, even the campaign that we're running, right? Like we've had so many incredible people step forward to put themselves, and, and I'm like, I'm out of my comfort zone too, but it's like put yourself out of your comfort zone to actually try like achieve something and, and do something together. And I guess like I've seen a lot, across, you know, like local government spheres and just just people, right? People who want to change things. And ultimately it simply comes down to, I think, like showing up, like showing up. And I think today, just the way the world works when, you know, we're like struggling to even like pay the bills and, you know, family matters and friends and Netflix and, you know, just stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's so easy to not show up. And to be like, oh, you know, that's not my problem. That's not my issue. And unfortunately, like, not enough of us see it as our problem and our issue and that we can actually have agency in changing things. It's kind of similar to what you've you've said about, like, you know, not really interested in necessarily blaming any people in particular for where we've come to because that's been the way that things are is kind of how it's it's meant to go, <laughs> Um I guess politically, economically, from a socialist perspective as well, like these are the priorities that we've set. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, the environment and social justice and stuff has taken a bit of a backseat in that. And what you're saying as well around like, you know, it's so easy not to show up. I I wonder if that's also just like kind of been incentivized and, and systemically everything is kind of set up in a way where it's a real uphill battle to get involved Totally. I don't know. Do you agree? I I agree. Like it suits it suits the powers 
that be. It suits the corporations who are making massive profits. It suits the people who are currently incredibly, breathtakingly wealthy for people not to be engaged, for people to think that it doesn't matter, there's no point, um, my vote won't matter, all of that. It suits them. And not only that, but there are active, you know, forces at play internationally that are trying to destabilise democracies, you know, like ours, and that's, like, clearly documented, because they want to, yeah, like, take the power from the people, and they want the power to remain where it currently is. And unless we actually realise as people that, you know, I mean, it might not always be the case that the people can take the power, but right now it is. That's quite scary, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's terrifying. But it's like right now it is and we can change the settings to ensure that the people, especially in this country, you know, do have the power. But, you know, if we have like, again, like a national act government who prioritise settings where like wealthy donors, for example, can just flood their campaign with money and influence our democracy, then that's what we'll get. Yeah. I was going to ask you a really kind of tricky question, but you actually just preempted it in that answer. So, because I was going to say, you know, you said before we can basically we have an opportunity to get people in to change the way that we do stuff to get into parliament. Mm -hmm. But then also we're talking a little bit about how like the system is set up in such a way to make change quite difficult. So I was going to say like, well, how much can we really do or how much do you believe that people can really do having been elected whether it's at the local regional or national level but you kind of just well you might want to say more about it but I liked that you said like well right now we have the ability to get people in there yeah and that may not I mean I don't want to be alarmist but you know that may not always be so yeah easy to do no I I I actually want to I there are a few examples especially in my term on council that showed me the power of like people power right and the the most glaring one was in my first term and I'd only been on council a few months and basically the government were consulting on deep sea oil and gas drilling off you know the around the coast of Aotearoa but we were specifically focused on Canterbury because we were Canterbury Regional Council and basically I was saying to council well look we're the elected members of this region, Waitaha, and we should be, you know, for all these reasons, this evidence-based body of work, we should be opposing deep sea oil and gas drilling because it's too risky, not only to our environment, but to our economy and therefore our people. And, you know, I was literally told by council for months, and this was actually at this time we had not only elected councillors, but we had government-appointed commissioners who were, you know, past environment court judges and past members of parliament. And they were saying, you don't understand the RMA. You don't understand our role. You're wrong. This isn't the council's blah, 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 on and on for months. And I was like, well, you know, I I get why you're saying that, but you're wrong. (laughs) 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 But basically I worked with, you know, a few of the really amazing climate groups at the time, um, 350, Generation Zero, 
talked to some of the academics at the uni and sure enough the public meeting happened where we were going to decide on whether we would oppose deep sea oil and gas drilling and it was like right up to the meeting that actual public meeting and even right before the meeting you know people were just the councillors and the commissioners were saying this is ridiculous like why are we even wasting our time blah blah anyway sure enough the public meeting happens the groups come in and do these fantastic deputations about why why we wouldn't you know, support oil and gas drilling off our coast and the academics as well. And then the vote happens and sure enough, everyone bar two of the councillors voted to oppose oil and gas drilling off the Canterbury coast. And basically, I mean, long story short, the same thing happened with we were the first council to declare a climate emergency. Mm. Now, we did not have the numbers. There was not support for that going into the meeting. But then the meeting happens and the people have their say and they set an expectation for their leaders to actually, you know, vote a certain way and make a certain decision. And it happens. You know, it literally happens. But we need to organise. Yes, totally. And make it happen. This is going to sound like a maybe a silly question, but uh, please please read it for me just not knowing. What does it mean to declare a a climate emergency? What does that actually mean? entail yeah great question okay so in a nutshell like especially at that time where we were the first council to declare it's largely symbolic it was literally about acknowledging in a very public way that actually the science is there the impacts are real and that they're happening now and they're not happening they're not something that's on the horizon they're happening now and we need to act in a way that we would in an emergency. Now, ideally, and this is where the like ideal world comes in, ideally, because we've made that emergency declaration, that's when our funding models would change. You know, the whole way that we do actually prepare ourselves for an emergency would kick into gear and it would translate to the way, yeah, we, we fund things and actually resource them and make them happen, not only so that we are prepared for, you know, this increasingly uncertain future, but that we're also trying to reduce the amount of emissions that we're actually putting out into the atmosphere so that we're reducing our likelihood of there being, you know, this actual continuing emergency unfolding. Yeah, I really appreciate you just taking that question quite seriously as well because I'm sure when this was a decision that was made by ECAN, that would have been post-earthquake is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there's a there's a kind of a knowledge of what certain kinds of emergencies can entail. Yeah. And then now I look to places like up north or whatever and see the kind of actual emergency <laughs> um, yeah. situations unfolding with flooding or hurricanes or whatever, all that kind of stuff. And we're not talking in an abstract sense about what it yeah. means to have a climate emergency. Yeah. Like they come, people have to deal with them impacts is how much food is and all that kind of stuff. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to kind of derail, but like it's it's helpful to me. I'm actually thinking about Oh no, yeah. it's totally like it's all encompassing, right? And 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 I think the whole point with the attempt at, you know, trying to declare a climate emergency, it was trying to say, okay, we are we know that we're so good at, you know, as a Aotearoa community we are good at responding to need in emergencies. We, 
you know, we see the best of our communities. We make sure everyone eats. We make sure everyone has, you know, a safe place to like shelter and <laughs> live and we meet their immediate needs. And I guess the sort of rationale between around the climate emergency was trying to take that approach but in this more long-term unfolding emergency when you know at, at the time we hadn't had cyclone gabriel yeah. you know and and we hadn't had these increasing weather events i mean we had had some massive flooding events which did you know bring things into clarity especially in canterbury but it's like it's happening people you know and and i guess the science is is actually you know, pointing us now that it's actually much worse than we thought. But there is still a window, a very short window for us as like human beings to actually, like I actually see it as like evolution. Like can we evolve enough to use our brains to not just react to the immediate emergencies that, you know, come our way, but actually look to what's coming in the future and that's our challenge and we ain't there yet yeah (laughs) I was just going to ask what yeah where are we why does this particular general election matter in terms of the environment and stuff what is this like short window that you're talking about can you tell me a little bit more yeah yeah so basically a lot of the evidence in short says that we have basically to the end of this decade to vastly reduce our climate emissions. Otherwise, we won't be what they describe as bending the curve enough to actually reach net zero by 2050. So these initial years are absolutely key. And for Aotearoa, we have this, it's basically what's called our nationally determined contribution. So this is how much emissions we can put out into the world in a like global treaty with the rest of the world. And we need, like we have, also I want to say this, we have all the tools and technology to enable us to do this now, okay? Because there's a lot of like techno misinformation about, oh, you know, we once we have the technology, it's like, no, forget about that. We have the tools now. We just need the political will to do things differently. So this election is absolutely critical because whoever's in power will actually be setting the emissions budgets like out to 2050. And that will determine whether, you know, New Zealand is actually serious about playing our role in trying to avoid the worst of climate change. You know, we can't avoid it. It's it's happening. The question for us is how bad do we want it to get? And, you know, the, the classic is New Zealand's really small, right? And it's like, oh, do we really need to do anything because India and China aren't? (laughs) But I was reminded actually even yesterday at the climate strike, um, which the school strike for climate people put on, and, you know, they were saying, yes, New Zealand, like if all the countries who contributed less than 2% of, you know, their emissions on, on the global stage said we're too small to do anything, that basically equals more in terms of total emissions, than India and China combined. Interesting. So if we're all saying, no, we're too small to matter, then we're just like, 
yeah, it's 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 the total wrong way to look at it. And we are in terms of um, emitters, we're like top five in New Zealand for highest per capita emitters. So it is on us. It's on us. Yeah. Honestly, I should have looked into this before today, really, but it's no. just occurred to me that like there there are rules around like what you what you can say around like election time, eh? About, but maybe yeah. we'll be okay. So yeah, that's just to say maybe you could answer this hypothetically rather. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but do you have any sort of particular feelings around? I know you said earlier, like even if you feel disillusioned, mm-hmm. you can do other stuff, but still vote. It's really easy. But I. Yeah, I'm interested to know what your thoughts are around voting mm-hmm. and what you would say to people who might either never have voted before and are not really sure what to do or maybe are politically engaged but don't feel like yeah, like their vote is going to be yeah. impactful this general election. Oh, or, yeah. yeah. You don't I, have to say I, vote for Greens. Yeah. but <laughs> No, I get it. I get it. And, and I will totally say vote for Greens. <laughs> And I can, but I guess, I guess I'd say like, I get it. Like I get, you know, the decision to be disconnected or take a step back or not pay attention. You know, I get it. Like I wish I could run away into a little hovel and (laughs) just curl up with my family and have a nice life. Like that's human nature, right? Like, and, and I think given the past decision-making and history of our politicians and what's happened or not happened in government. Like, I get it why you'd want to switch off and be like, no, I'm just having nothing to do with that. But I guess my message would be to those people, like, do you know that how much we actually need you? You know, like, because there are some of us and groups of us, the Green Party included, who are working so hard to try change things and that change is possible and not only is it possible but we actually have a plan to do it and you know I I, I think um, as well we kind of still have this idea as you know this sort of like community of New Zealand right that we're a small community but ultimately we're all in it together And I think that can kind of create a false sense of security that, you know, ultimately we're going to be all right. Like we are going to look out for each other. But what we're seeing, you know, and this is across the globe, but even here in Aotearoa, like the stat that really floored me was this Inland Revenue Report the other week that said the wealthiest 311 families own the same amount of wealth as the bottom 2.5 million people. And... I just kind of was like, holy, yeah. you know, it's quite staggering. But what we've done as a society is we've actually set up our tax system and our economic structure to enable the wealthy to get wealthier. Um, because what this report also said is that these really wealthy people pay an effective tax rate of 9% versus the rest of us who pay roughly 22%. And what the Greens are trying to say is that everything in this country, like including poverty, is a political choice. We have the wealth, we have the resources to be able to set the system up differently. And that's exactly what, you know, basically we were proposing this election. So we're proposing for the first time a wealth tax, 
which would it's like a 2.5% wealth tax. It's very yeah. <laughs> little. But even if we applied that in the in the way that we're wanting to, it would impact the, the wealthiest 0.7% of the country. And even if we did that, that would allow things like free universal dental care for everyone. And, you know, we hear that seven out of 10 Kiwis are putting off going to the dentist because they can't afford it. Years. <laughs> I'm waiting to be a politician to be able to go to the dentist. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, it, that's a health issue, but it's a it's a setting that we've set up as a society that dentistry is not, you know, for everyone. It's for the wealthy. Yeah. And we can choose to make that totally different. We can do things like, um, you know, that, that wealth tax would fund universal student allowances. And the Greens still, you know, we're still working towards fee, fees free. You know, we believe that education is a public good, but it would also be able to afford, like there's so many things, um, what we're calling our income guarantee, which would lift every single person, child, family out of poverty so that they can actually put good food on the table, they can pay the bills and not be under this absolutely chronic stress and pressure of just trying to get by. Now that's about equitable wealth distribution and it's on the table yeah, right now. But people need to, I guess, understand that it, it is possible because we've just been so, I think it's been like, you know, drummed into us that these kind of settings are just the way things are. I regularly have conversations with you know my friend groups and you know people that I mix with and we say all this stuff we say like we don't need to wait for technology we have it now we don't you know it's not a matter of of what we do or don't have it's about how we've set things up and how we distribute goods and stuff like that but I think even though we we believe that stuff we still maybe it's just because of taking so many knocks like over time or whatever that you don't want to get excited yeah. or you don't want to get your hopes up. Yeah. But really you have to, you know, because otherwise you just you just let it happen, don't you? you got to go yeah. down. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess the disengaging, right, if you disengage and, you know, say don't vote, for example, like do it with the full knowledge that there is this immense immovability of the status quo and – by disengaging, unfortunately, just the way the system works, you become part of that. And those who are trying to shift it have less power. Yeah. And so it's like, please be part of it. Because <laughs> yeah. we really like, and, you know, I'm hoping, you know, the way that, I guess the way that Labour has been incredibly disappointing. Mm. And, and, you know, I was the same. I had massive hopes for the Jacinda Ardern lead government and and yeah like hugely disappointed with how that's gone and you know even basic things like this example that someone reminded me of the other day where you know Labour campaigned in 2017 about ending mining on conservation land you know you'd think that's a basic thing right yeah but Eugenie Sage actually had a bill in the house a few weeks before parliament rose to end mining on conservation land and Labour actually voted it down but then to sort of like add insult to injury, they've actually got it as one of their new election policies. Oh, my God. That's, I mean, it's hard to to hear that. It just sounds, it's hard to not be cynical about that and just it say, is. Hey, you, you seem to only care about things yeah. when they sound good as a as a promise, but not 
follow through. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, like I don't know what the disconnect is there for, for parliament itself where like you go in, like, I'm sure these politicians have great intentions and I'm sure I will be discovering what that, you know, why there's that disconnect between, and I don't even want to call it aspiration, but like plans and policies, but then getting into power and not delivering. Yeah. But I I can only, you know, from what I hear from within the Green Party and especially like, you know, ministers like James Shaw, who's been climate minister and Marama Davidson, who's been family and sexual violence minister, um, prevention of family and sexual violence minister, I should say. It's simply about political courage and it's about the numbers of people around that particularly cabinet table and the Greens have not been around that cabinet table so we're trying to we're going so hard because we're like we need more green MPs around that cabinet decision making table who can actually grab the reins of power and the money and actually push it out and get it out to communities and get it out to where we actually need things and not have it sort of in this like cyclone of Wellington where it seems like the money just sort of goes round in this churning pot of nothing. Yeah. <laughs> That's a quotable quote if I ever heard one. (laughs) We're sort of running out of time. This has just been such a fun conversation. But maybe as a way to to sort of start wrapping things up and to keep things really positive and Mm -hmm. remind people of what what is at stake in the positive sense, like what we can do, Mm -hmm. can you tell me about what would your ideal world be like? Like what what are we aiming for? Oh, that is such a good question because I feel like, you know, one big issue that we have is we're just so devoid of vision. But my ideal future is like we've decided, right, this is a crazy idea, we've decided <laughs> that we set up our society and our economy around not only caring for each other as people but caring for the environment, but we prioritise in that like connection to each other because, you know, we do have this like massively growing disconnect in loneliness epidemic, like Mm -hmm. that's real, and especially with an ageing population. So we, yeah, we prioritise each other and we connect to each other and we do that by doing things like making space for people, not cars in our cities, and that's one of the primary like green policy pillars and it's about reconnecting and restoring nature. So one of again, one of our massive policies around that is protecting 30% of our ocean by 2030 because we currently only protect less than 1%. I found this out through my work. Like we had a partnership with Blake NZ, sorry, <laughs> to get you off. And so we were delivering stuff around like protected marine zones and stuff like that, you know, to schools and using VR and stuff like that. But yeah. as part of it, Obviously, my background is not environmental science or whatever, but I had to learn some of it. And I was, yeah, shocked to less than 1%. It is shocking because, yeah, yeah, other countries are at like 30 or 40%. And it's just we haven't haven't cracked it because we we haven't done it in a way that actually upholds tatariti and iwi Māori rights and also responsibilities. So that's what the Green Party are totally focused on with oceans. It's like let's do it in a tatariti way where, yeah, iwi rights and interests are actually, like, honoured and upheld. Mm -hmm. And that's across so much of how we can make this country 
work way better. But yeah, it's it's a place where we understand real like the real value of things. So we understand that, you know, clean drinking water and rivers and lakes and streams we can swim in and gather food from. They're the things that have the immense value. And, you know, soils we can grow food in yeah. and like locally resilient food systems and rail systems, public and active transport that actually like give us options for moving and ultimately massively benefit our own health and well-being. That's what we can all have, like, and it's all possible. And I think what people get caught up on is like the costs of some of these things. And if we actually looked at the costs and like the true costs of things, like for example, significantly investing in public transport, the Climate Commission say would have a $15 billion health saving. You know, like it's like, can we, and it comes back to this, can we evolve? Can we actually start looking at our world as like one thing where, you know, we are not sort of serving this ridiculous idea of economic growth, which we know is impossible. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's what we can do, but we need to decide to, and we actually need to do it together because that's the only way we're actually going to change things. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of now. <laughs> now. Yeah, voting like yeah, voting opens in a week and it's only open till the 14th of October and then we've set in place, you know, either this like positive future where we're going to have a crack at trying to make things better or not that. Hopefully that. Hopefully that. Yeah. Hopefully that. Lana, is there anything else that you would like to say? Yeah. I would just say to everyone listening, like, please do not underestimate the power of your own voice, you know, and just use it. Like, please use it. Because, you know, life is really short. And especially where we're at now, we only, like, it is this generation who will decide to give the rest of humanity a awesome future or not. And it, it's on us. Like, by the time our kids are old enough to make these decisions, it will be too late. So, Yeah. I encourage you to be part of the positive change and driving that because we really need you. Yes. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been so good. And, yeah. Thank you. I just feel like you're very energetic and it makes people feel energised and that's what we need. So that's good. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Did Did you have a chance to think about a song oh, yeah, that you might song. like me to play? <laughs> you know what? I, I, gosh, I have so many. But I wanted to choose, I think ultimately, I always come back to Nina Simone, Feeling Good. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah, it's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me, ooh, 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 ooh. and I'm feeling good. Fish in the sea, you know how I feel. River running free, you know how I 
the 1965 song Feeling Good by Nina Simone and my guest Lan Farm chose that song for you. Thank you so much Lan. It's time now for the resource review slash recommendation part of the show and this month I'm really happy to be able to share two reviews submitted to me by Canterbury Socialist Society executive member and editor of Commonweal Martin Crick. So first up it's the 2023 work I Don't Believe in Murder Standing Up for Peace in World War I Canterbury by Margaret Lovell Smith. Says Martin, The centennial commemorations of the First World War, 1914 through 1918, often seem to border on a glorification of war, with their constant themes of heroism, sacrifice and freedom. But the overall impression given was of a country united in support of the war effort. Yet there was opposition to the war, and it was more widespread than the commemorations allow. Christchurch in particular became a centre of anti-war agitation and in this book Margaret Lovell Smith gives us a rich and fascinating account of the people who helped to create radical Christchurch, socialists, pacifists, religious and women. Drawing on a wide range of sources, the book's particular strength is to give us the stories of these conscientious objectors and their supporters in their own words. She gives us both an enthralling narrative and a valuable reminder to be suspicious of official histories and ones which purport to paint a picture of a nation as one. Four and a half red stars. Pretty good. Next up, it's that classic primer, Why Marx Was Right by Terry Eagleton, and that's a 2018 work. Again, says Martin, in this short book, Eagleton takes 10 common objections to Marx's work, one per chapter, and tries to refute them. In doing so, he provides a clear and accessible introduction to Marxism for those new to the subject. It is well written, 
easily accessible, and I would recommend it to all those wishing to familiarise themselves with the basic tenets of Marxist theory. Four red stars. And I must say that this was a book I read some years ago, and I also recommend it to those starting out on their Marxist journey. Thank you so much, Martin, for those resource reviews slash recommendations. It's now time for one more song before I share a few updates and then sign off. This is the 2021 song Scratch Card Lanyard by Dry Cleaning. Enjoy.
That was Scratch Card Lanyard by Dry Cleaning. And that's about it for this episode of The End of History. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks again to my guest, Lan Farm. Just before I say goodbye, I have a couple of plugs for you. There is no educational CSS event as such in October. And that's because this is the time of year when we come together for an annual general meeting. We elect executive members, we reflect on past activities, and we also set a bit of a course for the year ahead. The 2023 CSS AGM is only open to members, so I won't share particular details of it right now. But this means that now is a great time to join the CSS. Membership is just $40 annually, and there's some cool swag that goes along with that. If you do become a member of the CSS or another of the socialist societies affiliated to the Aotearoa New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies, you can also attend the full programme of events arranged for the first ever NZFSS conference, which is taking place in Christchurch over Labour weekend. There'll be panel discussions, a keynote talk by Daniel Lopez of the Victorian Socialists in Australia, and more. Again, head to socialistsocieties.org.nz for more information. You can also send an email to canterburysocialistsociety at gmail.com. If you've got feedback about the show, maybe songs you'd like to hear or resources that you'd like to review or recommend, do get in touch. I'll be back toward the end of October with another episode. Until then, kakite anō. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more, you can find us on Facebook as the Canterbury Socialist Society or visit our website at www.canterburysocialistsociety.org.nz. Thank you, and until next time, take care.